from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 3rd. Today, cybersecurity and the 2020 census. How Trump appointees helped the makers of a dangerous stroller fight off a recall, and an illegal sport in India. The U.S. is still dealing with the fallout from Russian interference in the 2016 election, and some people fear that the 2020 election might also be at risk. But cybersecurity experts are worried about something else too. Next year's census, for the first time, they are hoping that most people will fill it out online, and not only that, but when the enumerators come to the house to follow up with people who haven't responded, they are going to be intaking information with handheld iPhone aids rather than paper. Tara Barmpour covers demographics for the Post, and she's been reporting on the 2020 census and why the Census Bureau is making this big change. Because it will save money, assuming everything goes well. Assuming everything goes well. Yes, I mean a lot can go wrong with new systems, and as we know, a lot can go wrong with digital information and security, and making sure that everything's stored well and doesn't get lost, and also doesn't get hacked. So you've been writing a lot about the particular cybersecurity risks that are posed by going more digital with the census. What are people afraid might happen? Well, there are two angles for what could go wrong, and one is that the actual data could get hacked, that somebody could find a way into the systems, whether it's the central system of the government, or somehow when people are entering their information into their home computers or their laptops or their mobile devices, that somehow someone will be able to get this information. Another approach that people who wanted to mess with the census could take would be. Disinformation campaigns along the lines of what we saw with the elections, where they might send out messages that look real, saying, "Hey, the enumerator just came to my house, and there was an ICE officer with them," and that could absolutely scare immigrants who don't want to deal with ICE officers. And so then they might choose not to participate in the census because they're afraid that 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 could be a problem for them. Right? They might not answer the door when that enumerator comes around. Or you could get someone just saying, you know, the census has been hacked, and it could scare people off from filling it out, even if they have nothing to do with immigration. Or people could set up phishing sites, which are fake sites that look like the census form, and people think they've filled out their census, and they really haven't. So, what is the Census Bureau doing to protect against these kinds of risks? So they have been working. With both Department of Homeland Security and then also with tech companies, to try to figure out both protecting the data and then also looking out for fake news sites or any attempts to put out disinformation and catch it early on. And in the process of doing that, what are the kinds of things that they're putting in place? They wouldn't tell me everything, but for example, at the Department of Homeland Security, they are red teaming it, which means that they are behaving like hackers and trying to get into the system,、wow. and then you know, kind of seeing how well the bureau does to forestall that. So, kind of stress testing the system, right? 
The census has bought up over 100 domain names that sound like census sites. Yeah. They don't release the names that they bought up. But I can imagine something like census.com, yourcensus.com, fillouthecensus.com, stuff like that. I was looking for them myself. I was trying to find them online, you know, but I would imagine like my census 2020, things like that. And then the tech companies they're working with, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Twitter, have been talking about ways that they can identify and stop this misinformation as it's coming online. And after the election, Facebook and Twitter adopted new prohibitions around voter suppression, trying to stop these posts. They didn't say exactly if they're doing something similar this time, but Facebook said that people are going to be able to submit census-related posts to third-party fact-checkers for review, and Twitter said that it would be taking action against inauthentic accounts. But they wouldn't give me a lot of detail about what they were doing. Some people might think, like, why would anyone want to hack the census or mess with the census? So the census is a really, really important foundation of democracy because the data from the census is used for a decade's worth of decisions on federal funding, on apportionment, on redistricting. You know, if you fill out your census, then you're more likely to be counted in the sense that the government knows that they need to build a road here or they need to build a school here. Or if a business, say, decides that it wants to build a new store in your area, they're going to check and see how many people live there. And if they don't see enough people, they're not going to build that store there. And so the more accurate it is, the more accurately the government and the private sector are going to be able to determine how to serve people living there. And the danger of people being scared and of certain groups being scared off from filling it out is that they're going to lose resources. They're going to, their roads are going to have potholes. You know, their kids' schools are going to lose funding because people won't know that they're there. And it's going to become more and more skewed because there are other areas that get overcounted. And the undercount tends to be among minorities, immigrants, young children, people who rent rather than own their homes. Overcounts happen for people who have two homes. And so it just basically continues the inequality that is caused when there isn't an accurate census. I think that a lot of people think of the census as a radically apolitical process, right? We're just counting the number of people who live in this country, where they live, and like some basic information about that. But what we've seen, especially over the past 10 years, is that the census is somewhat political, that there are questions of, like, what data you ask for and what data you don't ask for. And, you know, we've heard a lot about the controversy over asking people's citizenship status and that the data from the census is used in a lot of political decision-making. And so it makes this process really political and makes it even more important that you get accurate data and sort of suggests why people would want to mess with the accuracy of that data. You're right. The census is supposed to be apolitical, and career census officials and workers are sticking to that. I think the problem comes when you have this situation with the citizenship question, which arose a couple of years ago after the Trump administration came in. And the discussion around it has been very heated, and people in groups that feel 
already targeted by this administration, and I mean specifically immigrant groups, worry that asking about citizenship is going to flag them. And even though the census data is by law private and confidential and cannot be shared, I think there's a deep fear that this might change and it could be shared at some point, either illegally or if the law were to change and suddenly it would be legal, just as people who signed up for DACA under the Obama administration and gave their information, I think, felt that the government turned on them after that situation changed. You mentioned that the pressure to make the census hack-proof has really ramped up because of what we saw during the 2016 election. And it strikes me that one of the things that we learned from that election is that when it comes to affecting or tampering with these basic democratic institutions like voting or like census taking, that you don't actually have to do enough to significantly change the results. You just have to do enough to make people question the results or make people lose confidence in the validity of that process. Absolutely. You don't have to change any data at all. But if people feel that they can no longer trust that data, then they're not going to trust it. And there have been situations where a census has been hacked. In Australia a couple of years ago, hackers got into the census process and they were able to bring the system down for a while, the website down. And in the end, I believe that data was not affected, but people's trust in the data was affected. And what would it look like if we ended up with a census where people weren't confident that the results were real? One thing is that if the response rate is so low that enumerators have to go out into the field and go after people, it's going to cost the government a lot more money to send enumerators out to find the people who didn't fill out their forms. But also, sometimes you just can't find them, and then they have to rely on less reliable methods, such as neighbors or landlords or administrative records or the last time somebody got information from that house. And so it is going to be less accurate. And that could have deep repercussions for our democracy if that's happening on a big scale. Tara Barampour covers demographics for The Post. The typical parent that has a Bob is like this active, urbane, you know, upper middle class professional. I mean, if you were to draw like a horrible stereotype of like who uses this product, like that's who that is. That's Post reporter Todd Frankel. And Todd happens to own this specific jogging stroller, the Bob, from a company called Britax. Because it's different than the typical four-wheeled stroller. This has three wheels. It moves fast. It's really convenient. And, like, you know, when you talk to other parents about it, like, there's almost like a, almost a cult of Bob. The stroller sells for between $400 and $600, and it's incredibly popular. If you search for Bob Strollers on YouTube, there are pages of parent bloggers giving it reviews, and most of them are really positive. But something was happening to these strollers. A woman in Cleveland named Tess Sawyer found out the hard way. In uh, 2016, she was out running, and she told me she was sprinting down the sidewalk, coming at the end of her run on her block, and all of a sudden the wheel fell off. The front of the stroller dips down, the back end flips up, and she was struggling, holding onto the handlebars, trying to maintain control and keep the whole thing from tumbling out of her hands, and she was able to slow down and stop it. 
There were 200 reports from people like Tess who had had an accident while using the bob. And while Tess and her daughter weren't hurt, 100 adults and children have been injured under similar circumstances. They broke bones, elbows, shins, feet, ankles. And the kids in the stroller, whether they're strapped in or not, had dental injuries, broken teeth, stitches to their face. One kid had bleeding from his ear, a probable concussion. Pretty bad stuff. Eventually, the Consumer Product Safety Commission had to step in. And so they did their own studies. They actually got one of these strollers and took it out in the D.C. area and tried to experiment with it to see, like, what's making the wheel fall off. And over the course of several months, they came to the conclusion that this is a problem and something needs to be done. How did this investigation from the Consumer Product Safety Commission progress? So it started in 2016 under the Obama administration when the um, Democrats still had a majority on the commission at the agency. And then Trump gets elected. Amory Burkle, who was elevated to become the chairwoman of the agency, which sort of made her the day-to-day person running the agency and what it was focusing on. So the stroller investigation is being done in the background as she sort of takes control of the agency. And you can sort of see then that this, the way the stroller investigation was treated was changed, right? So you have no longer Democrats in control, you now have Republicans in control. And the emphasis on how to approach this company, what to do about this, changed from a more of aggressive posture to more like, let's work with the company and sort of figure out what we can do. What did they do? So March of 2017, they made what's called a uh, preliminary determination of a substantial product hazard, which is kind of a big deal in, in that world. It's sort of the start of, all right, we've identified this problem. It, this is unsafe. And so we need to do something. And so once they did that, then it usually starts down the period of, all right, how do we correct this? And they thought that a recall was the best way to go, staffed it at least. Very often the company will say, you're right, CPSC, and we're going to recall this and glad you called us out on that. And that happens fairly frequently. In this case, the company resisted. They felt that the quick release, which was the problem they identified as causing these crashes, this was because consumers were misusing it. And so it wasn't the product that was to blame. It was the people who were using the product. That was brute tax's argument. That was, yeah. And and they just get to do that. They just get to say, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna recall it. Even even though this, this federal agency is saying you need to do this, they get to do it to a, an extent because then with the big hammer that the CPSC can drop is to sue to sue them in court and say we feel this is such a danger we're going to sue you to force a recall. And companies, I've talked to many people about this. Most companies are loath to go to this point. They don't want the attention of being sued by the safety regulators. That looks horrible. For whatever reason, Britex felt so strongly, they're like, bring it on. And then what happened? The decision to sue was three to one Democrats to Republicans. By the time they get to the subpoena, one Democrat had left, another Republican had joined. It was now two to two. And that tie meant that if there was a tie vote, no subpoena. The staff at the Consumer Product Safety Commission still believed in the case, but the people who were making decisions about how to pursue it had changed. Two months later, another Republican joined the commission and in that time, they reached a settlement. As was explained to me by a couple of people at the commission, you know, the case was badly hobbled by this subpoena decision and then was settled in a way that, importantly for the company, as they made clear, was did not include a recall, did not include a, what they call a corrective plan of action, these two traditional features of how you think about getting a dangerous product off the market. Instead, there were these other elements that were sort of half measures and were open to criticism for whether they actually enhance public safety. So what is Britax doing now to try to 
prevent any of these incidents from happening in the future. So as part of the settlement, they had to launch a public safety campaign and offer discounts to some stroller users and also this quick release being the problem point. They had to offer a different way of connecting this front wheel to the stroller. But it came with a lot of caveats. Like if your stroller was made after October of 2015, I think it was, then you didn't get this. If you waited more than a year, you didn't get this. If your stroller was made before another date, you didn't. You couldn't get a different quick release. You could only get a discount on a new stroller. And so the criticism from consumer advocates was that this was such a confusing offer that consumers wouldn't know what to make of it. And then additionally, because it wasn't a recall, the CPSC didn't announce it as such. It doesn't capture people's attention. As I point out in the story, Britex produced this nine-minute video on how to use the quick release. An improperly secured front quick release can cause the wheel to vibrate, wobble, or become detached from the stroller and can cause severe injury. And after two months of this campaign being open to the public, fewer than 200 people had watched the video. Fewer than 200 people actually watched this video, and this is a critical part of how they're getting the message out about the dangers of these strollers? Exactly. And, you know, there were over almost half a million strollers out there that have this problem. What do you think this case means for the future of the Consumer Product Safety Commission and other recalls that they try to enforce? So one of the commissioners told me that he worried that this non-recall recall, as he sort of described it, right, sort of looks like a recall, but no one's paying attention to it, uh, would become the new model, that other companies would start to do this. And we haven't seen that yet. I mean, it's early days. But, you know, he told me that already he's seen more pushback from companies for being, like, less wary of the CPSC's authority, realizing that, like, well, look what Britex did. So, you know, I think it's going to change going forward, and I think, you know, people should be paying attention to that. Thank you so much, Todd. Thanks. Todd Frankel is an enterprise reporter on The Post's financial desk. And now, one more thing. A clash between law and tradition in India. So I arrived at the airport in a city called uh, Vijaywada. And I met with a friend of a friend uh, who said they could take me to the cockfights. And this friend of a friend gave me strict instructions to be as inconspicuous as possible and not to ask too many questions, which is, of course problematic for a journalist. This is because these cockfights are entirely illegal. And Joanna Slater, our India bureau chief, says that the fact that these cockfights still take place every year speaks to a larger issue. When the rule of law goes up against tradition and political muscle, it often loses. So we got into a car and drove an hour and a half where uh, down a highway. Uh, and then parked under an overpass where his brother-in-law showed up on a motorcycle uh, and jumped in the car and said he knew where a cockfight was taking place uh, under the auspices of a local politician. Then we kept going and the road went down into this giant abandoned gravel pit. And in this gravel pit were parked hundreds of cars. And as soon as we stepped out of the car, You could hear, invisible from behind the trees, the sound of cheers and rooster calls. And that was how we knew we had arrived. You kind of have to clamber up this slope, this really kind of narrow ledge, 
to reach a plateau and all of a sudden on the plateau there are hundreds of people, nearly all of them men, and there are two different arenas where cockfights were taking place, plus you know dozens of roosters tied to stakes in the ground, uh, watched over carefully by their trainers. There were gaming tables with various different types of bedding taking place. These roosters are large, larger than I would have expected. They have a very pronounced chest. They're quite beautiful. They're different types of breeds. They have very alert eyes and very, very sharp talons. And when they get ready for the fights, their trainers take them uh, into their arms and strap a blade uh, onto one of their legs. I spoke to uh, two breeders. One described to me in great detail the training regimen uh, he uses for his roosters uh, as well as their diet. That's what they feed them? What else? What else? Cashew. And cashews? Really? Three times a day, he would throw them into the nearest fish pond and force them to swim. And he said this turned them into more powerful birds. I don't know if it's true, but they certainly looked very robust to me. He had brought uh, 25 roosters to this particular three-day uh, cockfight, uh, which was organized by a local politician on the day that I met him, five of his roosters had been in fights, three of them had won, and two of them had lost. In other words, they were dead. Courts at the state and national level in India have found these fights illegal under laws that prevent cruelty to animals. But it's tough. These are an ingrained part of the festival and they enjoy the patronage of local politicians. I talked to one woman who lives in Hyderabad, which is a, a very big city nearby, and she comes to the cockfights every year. And she was there with her daughter and cousins, and they were having a grand old time. I asked her if she was worried about the law, and I thought her answer was very telling. She said, this is all illegal, but power, she said, pointing at this politician, power makes it okay. Joanna Slater is the Post's India Bureau Chief. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>